Human Weeds, Ethics and Self-Expression. Hashtag not all human. Cultural denialism, escapism, Netflix, computer games, shopping, beauty, cooking, eating, smoking, drinking, drugs. However you do it, we are an escapist culture and coronavirus is all but forcing it on us at the moment. The need to escape is fueled by the grappling of difficult truths we are collectively running away from, primarily one, the planet might die and it might be too late already, and two, humans are the primary reason for this. Neurosis. Freud, a problematic guy, no doubt, theorised on the use of defence mechanisms to protect neurosis within the ego circa 1925. He published between 1895 and 1929 and made many contributions, some questionable. One of his contributions to psychoanalysis was to theorise on the existence of defence mechanisms that protect the ego, another Freudian construct pertaining to consciously perceived reality from truths it found too traumatic to bear. Tactics employed by these defence mechanisms included repression, projection, introjection, reaction formation, isolation, undoing, turning against one's own person, reversal into the opposite, sublimation and displacement, none of which I'll really go into in this podcast. Whatever was psychologically repressed by such defence mechanisms were pushed down into the sub-slash-unconscious where they became neuroses, trapped, according to Freud, either bodily or somatically, that is, in the mind, the nature of which of such suppressed material pertains to thoughts, feelings, emotions or experiences totally unacceptable to a person and so therefore rejected. It was his theory that these neuroses created drives within the individuals employed to lessen the discomfort of carrying this trapped energy, demanding obsessional rituals targeted towards external goals, for example, power, fame, wealth, beauty, etc. The only relief for these drives comes, according to Freudian theory, through acceptance, through talking and gaining insight or emotionally reliving at reaction the material that first led to a psychological neurosis, psychoanalysts, through both hypnosis and cognitive behavioural therapy, are able to identify the trapped energy and releasing, release it, letting it flow out as either laughter or tears, and drugs can sometimes have a similar effect. If we, as a society, are attempting to escape hard truths about our impact on the planet, then proponents of psychoanalysis would strenuously argue for the need of talking about it to release ourselves from collective neuroses. Ethics is important to me in this way, as it enables a frame by which to look at societal trauma, reframing problems to enable such a release. For me, there's real pain in caring deeply for the world and for its inhabitants, and yet knowing that I'm part of a culture that practiced historical dispossession and genocide of Indigenous peoples, or which continues to benefit from the widespread pain and destruction wrought by the planetary ecocide necessary to keep up the comforts of a westernised lifestyle. So for all those reasons and more, I'd like to dig into these feelings. Number one, the planet might die and it might be too late already. Acceptance. If this is true, can we accept it? Can we imagine an ending which is not happy, where there is no last-minute saviour, and can we accept 
forgive and begin to radically accept such a destination? Further, can we willingly admit that the planet is better without humans and yet, despite that fact, carry on in hope instead of giving into despair? Can we forgive our governments, our societies, our history, our family, ourselves for the destruction? Can we mentally prepare for a world of free-fall climate feedback madness yet make every day count for making some small difference? Two, humans are the primary reason for this. This is the trickier truth to accept. Accepting this truth opens up the door to eco-fascism, destroying parts of the population in the name of the common good, but weaponizing a recognition of our adverse impact on the planet for political purposes is not helpful and equally, neither is denying it. Flatten the curve is what we're told as advice to controlling coronavirus on the foundation that slowing the impact of the virus better equips societal resilience against it. And another curve that needs flattening is our emissions and the amount of uh, temperature rise caused by them. Despite the state and federal government's neoliberalesque advantage taking of the coronavirus lockdowns to push through environmentally destructive legislation, notably logging state forests in Nambocca and throughout Victoria, and a new coal mine to be opened on top of Sydney's drinking water catchment, coronavirus is providing a flattening of the curve for climate change. By totally stopping flights and largely dropping emissions from car transport, the lockdowns are having a green impact and are further revealing what is possible given the right political will and clout. As an aside, neoliberalism and the shock doctrine. Naomi Klein's The Shock Doctrine, written in 2007, revealed disaster capitalism, tactics employed by state actors following disaster to maximise free market influence by using the disaster in order to win public mandate to consolidate power, which was then used to sell off pieces of the state to privately owned entities, thereby enriching those entities. This orthodoxy was Milton Friedman's brainchild and legacy and was, notably, used by the New Orleans government following Hurricane Katrina to privatise all then-state-owned schools. Disaster capitalism relies on disruption of society and ensuing chaos and confusion in order to exploit opportunities for maximum profits. Back to the main article. The challenging question is this. If our presence is so totally destructive to the earth and our absence productive, how can we ethically continue? Bush regeneration has a major core principle and it is this. Take out the weeds and watch na- and allow native populations to flourish. But if the humans are weeds, read invasive species, then the question of next steps get complicated, particularly if we reject a cons- conservation solution founded on principles of destruction. A weed is defined as an organism that dominates a system such that it monopolizes resources and extinguishes the diversity and abundance of other species. Both current bush regeneration and animal rescue orthodoxy practice the culling of invasive species as a tactic to allow native ecosystems to thrive. However, a species can become invasive and it can equally stop being invasive given specific parameters. 
For example, noisy miners, a native Australian bird, have begun exhibiting invasive tendencies. As bush patches in urban settings thin out, their strongly territorial tendencies, large family dynamics and success in living within cities is creating the context by which they are dominating to the detriment of other potential bird competitors. Wolves changing rivers. A counterexample of an invasive species becoming native, reef contained, comes from Yellowstone National Park in the USA circa 1995. Elk populations in this region were flourishing and becoming plague-like in their distribution, which was uniform, and their impact on nature. These herds of elk would eat the eat the small plants lining the rivers in this region, thereby destabilising shorebanks and causing widespread erosion and destruction of native scenery. The scientific paper published on this, Besher 2018, describes a trophic cascade that totally transformed the impact of this invasive species. Wolves were introduced into this region in 1995-96 and by 2014 the introduction of this apex predator benefited the park by minimising the impact of these elk populations on native flora, both through direct intervention, i.e. eating, but also through eliciting fear in the elk of approaching areas lacking the cover of dense bush, including riverbanks, which then started regrowing the vegetation, thereby stabilising their shores. Let's clarify, I'm not endorsing we introduce a predator to curb humanity. Instead, I am suggesting it's worthwhile embracing other limits on our population growth, on the amount of resources we use, on the way we travel, on the sizes of our house, on our diet and its source, in order to lessen our invasive influence while simultaneously helping to fortify and build the resilience of other animals we share the planet with. Most species populations are naturally limited by some type of resource, typically food and or space, and so their population growth typically follows a logarithmic curve, becoming first exponential until limits kick in, forcing the exponential growth to taper off into a new equilibrium. In the 1950s, humanity hit our limit, the supply of food. Fortunately for us, and unfortunately for nature, we discovered how to exponentially ramp up our out output of agricultural goods through the discovery of fixing nitrogen and phosphorus, thereby taking away our looming limitation. This continuous cheating of limits has benefited the human race at great expense of nature. To continue the example of our nitrogen-containing fertilizer, nitrogen naturally a very limited chemical in its environmental availability, and these limits enable growth and life that is continuous instead of exponential. However, with modern-day fertilizer runoff, this load of nitrogen and phosphorus is entering water body systems where they interact with algae and create blooms, that is, vast clouds of algae growth. Because nitrogen is no longer limited, these algae grow until such a time that they use up all available oxygen in these water bodies, oxygen then becoming the chemically limiting factor, thereby deoxygenating the water bodies they reside in. This then leads to mass deaths of all other resident marine wildlife in these water bodies. An ecosystem doesn't have to stay the same composition in order to be healthy. We, humans, can cohabit with nature in a way that is less invasive and more symbiotic if we recognise the limits from which if we overstep, we become destructive. 
Ecosystems throughout Earth's history have been continuously interrupted and reset by volcanoes, earthquakes, floods, landslides, glaciations, and each and every time it has been recolonized, not every ecosystem develops the same way or has the same organisms within it, but a path develops from primary to secondary colonizers through to a steady equilibrium state of multiple cohabiting species. With impending climate change, such dynamic resilience is becoming more critical than ever, and so maybe it's worth recognising species previously thought of as weeds as instead survivors and manage their existence in a way that brings maximum benefit to their communities. Let's start thinking about the evolution of evolution, how a species' ability to evolve physiologically, mentally, maximise their long-term fitness to a changing environment and let's be that species ourselves through a recognition of our limits. To return to Freud, our inability to limit our neurosis-driven drives, formal stuff, is destroying the planet. Perhaps to save the planet, we need to first confront reality, express ourselves, release it, and live fully and truthfully, thereby taking away the only limits not necessary to our survival.